Marshall here. Welcome back to The Realignment. Hey everyone, welcome back to the show. Some of my favorite realignment episodes are ones where we take a break from the public policy topic of the week and instead focus on how history can inform how we think about present day challenges. I think today's conversation with the author, Ben Steele, he's written a new book, The World That Wasn't, Henry Wallace and the fate of the American century perfectly fits into this framework. So number one, this is just an examination of especially the period during Harry S. Truman's first term after he replaced FDR, ended World War II, and of course began America's entry into the Cold War period. Any time we could spend in that period, which culminated, of course, the 1948 election, which is an election which definitely resonates with today's 2024 election, is incredibly helpful. I think that I'm going to take as many opportunities as possible to focus on that period. Secondly, though, Henry Wallace, the character profiled in the book and we spend time talking about during this conversation, is an interesting what-if of history figure, especially because if he had not been replaced on the Democratic ticket in 1944 by Harry Truman, we could have seen an entirely different man and entirely different approach to U.S. foreign policy at the start of the Cold War era. So in a time in the 2020s, a lot of folks are going around terms like great power competition, Cold War II, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's important we always remember that there are choices and figures and individual leadership actually matters. So, so much to talk about here. Hope you all enjoy this conversation. And I think, like I said before, there's a lot we could draw from that period in the 40s to today. Huge thank you to the Foundation for American Innovation for supporting the work of this podcast. Ben Steele, welcome to The Realignment. Thank you for having me, Marshall. I'm really excited um, to do this episode, especially because the first part of the book is genuinely the weirdest section <laughs> about a historical figure, especially a politician that I've ever read in my entire life. So we're going to do a bit of kind of unpacking and helping me understand what I'm reading here. But let's just start from the very obvious point. I would guess a vast, vast majority of the audience if they've even heard of Henry Wallace at all, would probably just think of him as one of FDR's multiple vice presidents who didn't actually make it to the top. What is the broad context for him? Why are you interested in writing about him? Yeah, so Henry Henry Wallace um, uh, was a mainstay in, in FDR's uh, cabinet. Um, he was agriculture secretary during FDR's first two terms from 33 to 1940. Um, he also was Commerce Secretary um, after uh, FDR's fourth term election in 1944. But he's best known for having been um, FDR's um, third term vice president. And the man who made him into a contemporary public figure of great relevance, in, in my view, is of all people, Oliver Stone, the uh, controversial a uh, documentary filmmaker um, who in 2012 um, made um, uh, a, a, a documentary video series uh, and a co-authored book uh, called The Untold History of the United States, in which he argued that um, if uh, Henry Wallace had kept his rightful place on the ticket in um, uh, 1944, um, he lost out to Harry Truman in a wild open convention that I described in the book in 1944. But if he had kept his place on the on the ticket, um, of course, he would have become president when FDR died the following April. 
Um, and according to Oliver Stone, there would have been no Cold War. Um, and you might be surprised how many um, genuinely politically interested, intelligent, articulate undergraduates uh, passionately believe in this story. I, I even remember um, vividly and fondly going to an off-Broadway play in Brooklyn called Convention, which was on this 44 convention and how Wallace lost out to to Truman. And I was listening to all the young people behind me talking about this, and you know, this story that Oliver Stone told. And if this guy, Henry Wallace, had um, stayed on as vice president, there would have been no Cold War. And, and um, you know, it's a really compelling idea that all it takes is a man or a woman who's dedicated to, to peace, to be in a leadership position, and conflict would just melt away in the world. And I wanted to investigate that. Um, and my last book, which had been an historical narrative on the Marshall Plan, was based overwhelmingly on fascinating Soviet archival documents. And I didn't know what I would find this time. But as you've probably noticed, there was a remarkable amount of fascinating material um, that was available um, from Russian archives, at least up until uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February 2022. So this is really, in, a, in effect, it's not just a biography, um, although Wallace is worthy of, uh, in, in, in my view, a new and more critical um, uh, biography. But it's, it's, um, it's a story about counterfactual history. Is it true that there would have been no Cold War had Henry Wallace been um, uh, president? And I, I think that's one of the things that makes the story quite compelling and interesting that you're imagining the whole way through the story. You know, what if this man had become president? People really do matter. So I think the helpful way to follow up with how you set that up is to ask what was the Cold War, especially in the context of 1945, if we're going to determine whether or not the counterfactual was accurate. Right. Well, um, you know, it, during the Second World War, of course, the United States and the Soviet Union were allies in uh, the, the fight against Nazi Germany. But they weren't really allies of choice in the way that Britain and the United States were. They were allies of necessity. Um, and it was always clear during the war that it was going to be an immense challenge um, to sustain cooperation between these two powers after the war um, for two primary reasons. First, geostrategic. Um, Russia has always been an extremely interesting country in terms of where it's geographically situated, um, because so many of its borders are open, you know, for example, it's Western borders and you're talking about thousands of miles of unprotected plain. So it's not surprising that, um, Russia has, um, been traditionally, um, invaded from the from the West, you know, um, uh, Hitler went to Moscow from from the West. Um, Napoleon went to Moscow from the West, and so this whole idea of 
defense and offense really doesn't apply to, to, to Russia. They were always the same thing, that Russia was always an expansionary power because they had to expand their, their borders and their influence in order to secure the um, previously more constrained um, uh, uh, territories. So the United States knew that after the war, um, they were going to have a difficult time containing Russia's geographic ambitions, both in, in Europe and Asia. And second, there was a, a burgeoning ideological conflict. The United States had now become sort of the, the um, flag bearer um, for democratic capitalism. And of course, the Soviet Union for um, uh, Marxism and, and communism. Um, and it was going to be a tremendous challenge to cooperate um, uh, after the necessity of cooperation in the, in the war um, uh, was over. But Henry Wallace was convinced that the two countries um, could do it. I think what becomes interesting is um, Oliver Stone's thesis about peace and avoiding a Cold War. It seems to me that the whole point of the Cold War aside from Korea, Vietnam, post-colonial conflict was obviously that we never went to war with the Soviet Union. So we came if, close on and we came and, close. Yes, yeah, so we, we come and, close, and but we, we never had proxy wars, but not a direct type war, right? So because we didn't get into a direct war, there's no direct war over Berlin during the airlift. There's no direct war over um, the Berlin Wall itself, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Afghanistan obviously is a form of proxy war. What was the alternative vision of how the relationship could have gone from right. the Stone slash um, Wallace perspective? Well, um, let's back up a little um, to the war years and what FDR's vision was. Uh, FDR was definitely a much more practical politician than Henry Wallace. Um, he believed that cooperation between the United States and the Soviet Union was possible um, and highly desirable. Um, but um, he simply sought to cons construct um, uh, institutional means of um, uh, cooperation that would contain conflict in an environment where there were real differences in views about um, how the world should be organized. So the United Nations was for FDR the centerpiece of that institutional reform. Um, and the Security Council, the UN Security Council, would be the, the body within the UN where these critical international security decisions would be um, taken. And it was quite a remarkable uh, achievement that FDR managed to bring Stalin into this structure. Um, but really, Stalin's um, um, primary concern was just to ensure that um, uh, his country had veto power within the Security Council. Uh, once um, uh, FDR and uh, ultimately Harry Truman ag agreed um, to this um, um, veto, the two countries were able um, in a superficial sense to cooperate in creating this institution because they both had very different ideas about um, how they would act within the um, uh, Security Council. Henry Wallace had a much broader idea 
of how the country, two countries would um, uh, cooperate. He envisioned a United Nations that would really be all powerful, um, not just from a political perspective, but from a military perspective, that it would be more powerful than any individual um, uh, member state of the UN militarily or any combination thereof. Um, in terms of the burgeoning conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union over um, um, nuclear energy and nuclear weapons, um, Wallace wanted that power to um, control um, this knowledge and these weapons to be lodged within the U United Nations. So this was a much more expansive vision about um, how the world could be organized after the Second World War. And this is where the counterfactual, but also the understanding of structure becomes so interesting. It seems to me that the political dynamic that FDR had to navigate as a former League of Nations supporter himself was how do you pass this follow-up organization, get United States participation in said organization, but also not just activate isolationist forces who opposed the League in the you know 20s and 10s, but also there were plenty of center-left, center-right voices who would be deeply skeptical of the vision that Wallace held for the institution while still being internationalists themselves. Exactly. So how exactly, if you're telling the Oliver Stone story, I'm asking you to be somewhat good faith here, obviously, do you get from, I'd say, the gap between Wallace's vision and the actual political reality in the United States? Well, um, what, what Wallace's uh, belief was um, that the, the, the Cold War was... Um, not brought on by the Soviet Union or even between um, equal forces on, on both sides, that it was genuinely the fault of one human being, Harry S. Truman, who was in, in, in Wallace's rendering a warmonger, um, that um, he was allying himself um, with um, uh, powerful evil forces within the U.S. Um, uh, military that were fundamentally imperialistic. He was allying himself with um, uh, greedy forces on Wall Street who sought to prosper um, from uh, renewed international um, uh, conflict. And that if the American public would simply reject that vision, and hopefully adopt him as their their leader. That um, there there was no need for a Cold War. That the United States and the Soviet Union could quite easily um, uh, cooperate. And Oliver Stone has accepted this at at face value. That the Cold War was fundamentally the fault of of um, uh, Harry Truman. If he had been taken out of the the picture and Henry Wallace had kept his rightful place on the ticket in 1944. He believed that the process that pushed him um, out, out of the vice presidency was fundamentally corrupt. I think I show uh, in the book that that's um, uh, wrong, but he believed that. Um, if, you, if you accept that um, uh, thesis, then you know history really did turn, pivot um, on, this, um, uh, on this critical figure. 
um, Henry Wallace. And in this regard, I do agree with Oliver Stone. So Oliver Stone and I strongly agree that individuals do matter. Um, it's not just that we're all slaves of historical um, uh, forces, um, that um, uh, individuals being in the right place at the right time, pursuing certain vi personal visions really do matter to the course of history. Yeah, and I think that's a interesting kind of tie into today's political system because obviously a world where Donald Trump doesn't become president in 2016, if you're looking at, let's say, China, Russia, et cetera, that really is kind of hinging. So I guess I'll ask you the kind of historical question. Where do you tend to stand on the, you know, great man, great figure versus structural forces argument, especially after written writing a book like this and then writing a previous book, which is named after, you know, a specific person whose um, you know, specific plan is changing big policy things? I think they both they both matter. Um, that um, I, Wallace himself, as you know, um, after he, he went into retirement um, uh, after the 1948 uh, election in which he ran against Harry Truman as an independent progressive and, and of course lost. Um, in his retirement, um, he acknowledged that he had gotten a lot wrong about Stalin and the Soviet Union. Um, and that um, to a significant degree, the conflict between the United States and the Soviet Union was inevitable. Um, and in particular, he pointed to the Korean War, where he was a, a staunch supporter of the U.S. position um, and blamed um, the Soviet Union entirely um, uh, for the war. But Wallace also at the same time maintained that if FDR had survived and Harry Truman had not become president, but FDR um, had continued on as uh, president, that the Cold War still could have been uh, avoided. And these two things really don't go, go together. Um, if, if you accept that Stalin was um, uh, headset, um, determined uh, to expand his um, uh, borders and influence both in Asia um, and Europe, then no institutional structures, no goodwill uh, expressed by the president of the United States was was going to be able to to change that. So Henry Wallace really continued to come down on on both sides um, uh, of the of the argument. Um, uh, my view is that um, uh, again that. Uh, individuals do matter very much and that there are so many pivotal um, uh, periods in history where having one person in power rather than another makes a huge, huge difference. You know, I would point to, you know, Harry Truman during the Berlin blockade and the very bold decisions that he made, which were quite similar um, to the ones that JFK made during the Cuban Missile Crisis. There were, in both conflicts, passionate advisors on both sides. You know, mm -hmm. people and uh, yelling in Harry Truman's um, uh, right ear that Berlin is everything. We have to fight for it. We, um, uh, uh, the world will never believe in us if we don't. People yelling in his left ear that we've got to get out. Berlin is indefensible. 
we never should have um, done things this way to begin with. And, and JFK, too, um, ha had to um, uh, deal with those um, competing um, voices. And um, I think we were fortunate in both those cases to have the right person in power at the time. And if we had had someone else, things could have turned out very differently and much worse. Reading the book and then kind of internalizing what you're saying here, I think what makes the Oliver Stone position somewhat difficult is it kind of imposes a framework, the Cold War, on what actually is a cascading series of decision points where, yeah. okay, there are political parties in Italy, Greece, et cetera, that are communist, socialistic, et cetera. What do we do? Okay, we have this American and British and French sector in Berlin. What do we do? Um, and if you think about it from that perspective, it's not that there was ever a point in the 40s where you could have said, okay, no Cold War peace. There were just a series of decisions where we had to take different positions on. So what would you say were those pivotal? And this is where I think we could tie this to today. Um, what are those 1940s, early 1950s pivot points where specific leaders had to make specific decisions that folks should think about when they're examining this question? Well, I'll go back to my previous book on the, on the Marshall Plan. Um, uh, I think that the early Cold War was fundamentally over one country, Germany, over the future of, of um, uh, Germany. Um, and we were fortunate um, to have Harry, Tr in my view, Harry Truman uh, in power as president um, during that period. And I, 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 um, uh, I would say we were fortunate to have him rather than FDR. I think FDR would have been um, a, a cold warrior if he had um, uh, survived to um, continue in his fourth term. But I think uh, Truman was a much more effective one. Um, he empowered better people um, beneath him, people like uh, George Marshall, people like George Kennan, people like Will Clayton, these were Dean Acheson, these were many of them conscientious objectors at times during the FDR ad administration, where it was, whereas it, it was FDR who put Wallace in um, positions of great power, which I, I think was uh, a fundamental mistake. Um, uh, but the, the fact that the United States did hold firm in Germany um, and did it in ways that were eminently prudent, such as the Marshall Plan, such as the um, um, uh, Berlin um, airlift, really made a difference in terms of how the early Cold War unfolded, giving us, as it were, an early advantage. I argue in the book that if Wallace had become president, um, uh, Stalin would um, almost certainly um, have expanded his uh, influence and geographic control very widely into Manchuria, into the entire Korean uh, peninsula, into Hokkaido, into Greece, um, uh, uh, into Turkey, into northern Iran, and ultimately into Germany. Um, and Wallace did, interestingly enough, in his retirement, um, uh, accept that he would not have been successful 
um, uh, in his first term um, if he had become president on on FDR's death and almost certainly would not have been elected in 1948. He said um, retrospectively that uh, he was probably done a, a big favor being, as it were, pushed off the ticket um, uh, in 1944. So it's, it was, it's, quite, it's an interesting perspective that Wallace himself takes that Oliver Stone doesn't try to reckon with. I think the big question here, and we often think about this in terms of um, FDR, Churchill's ability to kind of um, suss out um, Hitler and the nature of the threat he posed. Why was FDR and Wallace, obviously, why did they seem to be so susceptible to misinterpreting Stalin himself from a long-term perspective? Because as we're talking about Russia, the Soviet Union, we're really talking about Joseph Stalin. I think the relationship right. with the early Cold War wouldn't be different if there was a Brezhnev or if there were um, any of these other, like, you know, or even a Khrushchev in certain perspectives. Like, what was it about Stalin that leaves this so up for debate? I don't think that FDR was really that naive. Um, at times, he he did express enormous concern um, over Stalin um, uh, privately. Um, he was, before his death in April of 45, genuinely distressed over what he saw as um, uh, Stalin's complete repudiation of his promises um, at Yalta in February, for example, um, to allow free and fair elections in, in, in Poland. Um, but I'd say two things about FDR. Um, and, and with regard to the first one, he was, he was certainly right in, in my view. Um, the primary consideration during the war had to be winning the war. And there was simply no alternative to cooperating with Stalin, um, whose you know, who's survival um, was critical to um, maintaining the, the Eastern Front. Um, now, uh, the second perspective he took on, on Stalin would not have been borne out. And that was that FDR had enormous self-confidence, enormous confidence in his own ability to charm anyone into cooperation, even under the most difficult of circumstances. Um, and that would not, in my view, have worked um, had FDR um, uh, survived um, and um, uh, had he been forced to find an actual mechanism of cooperating with um, uh, Stalin during um, his 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 fourth term, that would not that would not have uh, worked. I should emphasize that when Truman became president, he had no intention of overthrowing the foreign policy architecture that FDR had put in place. It was events that convinced him that he had to he had to follow a, 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 a different line. So Harry Truman was a reluctant Cold Warrior. He was certainly not the warmonger that Henry Wallace tried to paint him as. So we focused on decisions and points around Europe and Asia. It seems like the other um, big debates, I'm curious how you think or how Henry Wallace would reflect his sort of point of view, but decolonization. I think this is an interesting right. area where um, yeah. FDR 
was certainly by the standards of the Anglo-American Alliance anti-colonial. Absolutely. Um, and was very specific about this. And, and, and it's actually served as a real detriment to his relationship with you know, Churchill towards the end. Um, how did Henry Wallace think about the colonial decolonization moment? And how did that reflect differently than Harry Truman's decisions? Well, in my case, two books ago, I wrote an historical yeah. narrative um, on the, the Bretton Woods Accords, which is called the Battle of Bretton Woods. And uh, that battle was a battle between the United States and the UK over what the um, uh, future world architecture would be after the Second World War. And fundamentally, um, colonialism was the big issue standing between the U.S. and the U.K. FDR was uh, absolutely determined um, to dismantle the, the British Empire after the war. Um, and in this, he had the full-throated support of um, uh, Henry Wallace. Um, uh, Wallace was certainly less diplomatic about um, his views on the subject than was FDR. And Churchill and the British government were deeply, deeply concerned with um, Wallace's um, views and the fact that he was willing to express them in such a robust form, even during the war. Um, and as, as you know, I, um, I describe in the book how the, the, the British had a spy campaign in the United States that was um, partly directed at Henry Wallace um, late in the um, uh, Second World War to suss out him, his, his views um, and what sort of policies he might pursue um, if um, he were to become uh, president. Um, and the British were desperately concerned about Henry Wallace. Um, and they pressured FDR enormously to drop him from the ticket in 1944. Now, my own view is that um, uh, this had no effect on FDR. Um, FDR, um, as you know, as I describe in the book, actually endorsed four different people in four different ways for vice president in 1944. And one of them was Henry Wallace. He did it in such a way that it was pretty certain that Wallace was going to lose, um, which is ultimately what FDR wanted um, uh, to happen. Um, but FDR appeared to have taken that position on overwhelmingly on domestic political grounds. Um, now, one of those grounds, which is quite important in terms of post-war history, um, is that FDR, FDR was um, act, actually demanded that Wallace be his running mate in 1940, even though the, the party was violently against it. He said, I'm not, I'm not going to take a third term unless you give me my choice. In 1944, he said to his advisors, there's no way I'm going through a battle like that again. Just no way. Um, and even if, you know, even if we win, um, we're going to have a situation shortly in which we're going to have to cooperate across the aisles to produce the United Nations. As, as you, you said earlier, of course, FDR had been a supporter of the League of, of Nations and was um, deeply um, uh, concerned not to repeat uh, Wilson's um, errors 
he knew he was going to have to cooperate across the aisles. And even within his own party, you know, he was going to have to deal with some difficult divisions. And he was convinced that Henry Wallace would have made those problems much worse. Um, so in the end, the British got what they wanted. Um, they were obviously much happier with uh, President Truman than they would have been with uh, President Wallace. But um, um, the British Empire collapsed nonetheless, um, partly under its own weight, but also very much partly under, uh, significantly under U.S. Um, uh, influence. Um, as I described in my book, The Battle of Bretton Woods, the um, United States um, uh, imposed um, significant obligations on Britain in terms of um, uh, its uh, accepting the need to dismantle so-called imperial trade preference for its colonies, to make its currency fully convertible again in 1947. Um, at an, an overvalued exchange rate. Um, all these things contributed um, to the financial collapse of the British Empire in early 1947. Um, so yes, um, Wallace would have pursued this with more open gusto, but U.S. policy was already pushing um, heavily in, in, in that direction. You've made reference to this, to his selection in 1940 for domestic political reasons. This kind of takes us back to the beginning of the conversation when I made reference to how weird um, Henry Wallace's 1930s were. I'd love for you to kind of give context and to introduce that section. because I, de I definitely think um, it's also interesting, too, because since he is coming not only from Iowa, but he's a, like a deeply – Secretary of Agriculture. He's 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 a farmer. He's a he's a serious yeah. businessman. That's just an entire conception of America's political dynamic that just no longer exists. If we make reference to farmers and politics, uh -huh. we'll talk about ethanol subsidies, or we'll talk sure. about early state primaries. But this was a whole portion of the Democratic Party. So that's what made him such a relevant figure. I'd love you to talk about the you know pre-war domestic part of this. It was it was a massive part of the U.S. government. Um, the, the position of secretary Agri of agriculture was a relatively young one and it started in the late 19th century. Uh, Wa Wallace came from, as it were, um, Iowan agricultural aristocracy. His grandfather created this very famous farm journal called Wallace's, um, farmer, um, which, uh, our Wallace eventually became the um, editor of. Reputedly, he was offered the post of Secretary of Agriculture twice, um, turned it down. But his father um, was uh, Agriculture Secretary under um, uh, uh, Coolidge and, and Harding. Um, and um, so when FDR was looking for an agriculture secretary, Henry Wallace was a natural person to um, turn to. Um, and he was an, a, a brilliant agricultural geneticist. I mean, really quite um, astounding. So much of the, the corn that we eat today was derived from Henry Wallace's experiments in hybridization. Even the chickens we eat today are derived from Henry Wallace's 
um, experimentations to produce chickens that would eat less and, and lay more, more eggs. And I describe in the book um, what I think makes him so effective as a scientist, but so completely ineffective as a political figure. And that was that Wallace had many attributes that we today associate with Asperger syndrome. Um, that is an inability to read social signals hmm. um, and to participate socially. He hated chit chat, for example. It actually pained him. He would either um, try desperately to leave the room um, or he would literally fall asleep because his, his body would just shut down. But that inability to deal in social situations also made him resistant to common wisdoms that were wrong about what was what was good corn, what was a good chicken. He didn't And, and quick thing, I love yeah. how you explain this because basically the way you articulated it at the turn of the 20th century, there was this focus on the aesthetics of like the individual exactly. corn itself. Exactly. And he just was like, wait a second, like that, if you kind of like think about it for a second, you articulate this well in the book, that doesn't necessarily seem to be obviously true beyond the conventional wisdom. And he just keeps surmounting the social disagreement or a program in a way that a typical, you know, an FDR, right. I mean, FDR wasn't a particularly successful business farmer person himself. So this is an interesting dynamic. <laughs> so um, Wallace was a natural person to turn to his agriculture secretary. Um, in terms of his performance as agriculture um, uh, secretary, um, you know, we didn't really know much about how to run a massive national agricultural policy at, at the time. And so he was given the benefit of a doubt because we were in a crisis in Great Depression. But a lot of the things he did, at least from today's framework, were really wacky. You know, killing six million pigs, forcing farmers to not only plant less, but rip up the cotton that they had already planted, just rip it up and destroy it in order to boost prices. Um, did this boost prices? Yes, but it also massively reduced the, 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 the stock. Um, so it didn't, if you look at his whole, the whole um, uh, two terms that he served as agriculture secretary, did he accomplish um, a great things? No, not really. Um, if we had wanted to do what he set out to do, which was really just to stabilize American agriculture, we should have just done what we did during the pandemic here and write the farmers big checks. That's mm -hmm. it. We didn't need to kill six million pigs. We didn't need to tell farmers to rip up their, their, their crops. But he expanded um, the agriculture department in the United States by leaps and bounds. It was by far the biggest bureaucracy in the American um, uh, government. So he was a powerful figure. But what made him so interesting, as you, 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 you know, is what he did behind the scenes in his first term. He was a scientist on the one hand, but he was a spiritualist on the, on the other. He was into crazy occult stuff and, and theosophy, and he became uh, what is theosophy? You should define. You should define this term. Yeah. Theosophy. So, so um, th this is a a a, a view um, that there are unseen forces outside of the the world that 
um, uh, influence the um, historical trajectory um, uh, of the world, and and that it um, um, we we need to develop means to tap into it. Um, and he became um, essentially part of a cult um, that was led by this remarkable um, uh, Russian figure, um, Nicholas Rerick, um, uh, who became ve very popular in New York in the 1920s. And he and his wife um, were also leaders of a theosophical movement that came to be called Agni Yoga. Um, and Wallace um, uh, becomes a great devotee of Nicholas Rerick. Um, he learns that Rerick wants to create um, basically this new theocratic state in Central Asia, recreate the mythical Shambhala. Um, and he's going to do this ultimately by taking territory from Siberia, from Mongolia, from Tibet, um, from China. It's really a remarkable vision. And, and, and Wallace, as agriculture secretary, 1934, wants to help this along. And how does he do it? He appoints Rarick to lead a seed foraging mission in Central Asia to look for drought resistant seeds to remedy the dust bowl in the um, Midwest of the United States. This was a cover, completely a political cover um, for him to aid uh, Rarick's efforts to create this new theocratic state. And as I describe in the book, this was, this was supposed to be a short section in uh, 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 his chapter, the chapter about his time at, Agri at agriculture secretary. And it turned out to be far, but to be by far the longest chapter of the book when I discovered how much was, was out there about this. It was so wild. Um, the Soviets, the Japanese, the Chinese, the British, everyone in the region um, becomes desperately concerned with what this crazy um, uh, Russian is uh, up to. Um, and ultimately, the whole thing blows up in Wallace's um, uh, face. It becomes um, a huge scandal. Um, it could have become much worse. World War II could have started um, many years uh, earlier. Um, the, the Japanese uh, and Soviets in particular were very concerned with what um, Rerick was um, up to and what it meant in, in terms of what was going on in Washington. I mean, who appointed this guy and why? What is the um, mm -hmm. uh, 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 agenda? And I describe how this blew up in Wallace's face. Um, and he was quite vicious in the way he disowned Rarick. Um Afterwards, he got the IRS after him. Rarick was never able to return to the United States, never able to return to Russia. Um, so he lived out the rest of his life in um, India, where he died um, uh, with his um, uh, wife. It's, it's really quite remarkable story. But this had this had a, a, a remarkable chain uh, influence on um, Wallace's psyche. Um, after this episode, he was much more careful 
about um, uh, how he handled his spiritualist um, uh, instincts. But he himself developed what I would call a messianic complex. He began to believe in himself as a sort of political messiah figure, which is really not that unusual among politicians with great ambition. Um, so at that point, he becomes sort of indistinguishable um, from um, uh, influential polit political figures um, with um, uh, great agendas. So he, channel he channels his spiritualism in a, in a, in a different direction. Um, and he makes it his sort of life's mission um, to produce peace with the Soviet Union. Um, and th that's where the, the early Cold War story starts to take over um, in, the, in the narrative once he becomes vice president in the early 1940s. So for the last section, kind of early Cold War to today, I'm curious, um, this is me just asking you, your opinion rather than you know channeling Wallace, what do you think the United States got wrong during the early Cold War period, basically through Vietnam. I'm like, what were those decisions right. that were incorrectly um, taken? With, without question, um, domino theory was a, 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 a deadly conceptual error. Um, yeah, I saw I I, I I saw that developing um, uh, early after the Second World War when I was writing my Marshall Plan book. Mm -hmm. uh, um, in, um, figures like Dean Acheson, and I, I admire Dean Acheson in many ways, but so many of them um, came to think of the whole globe in terms of domino theory. You know, if one domino falls in Asia, the rest of them will fall. And I, I, I give Wallace credit here. I, I point out um, uh, in the, the last chapter of the book that um, if Wallace had survived longer, I think he would have been very vocal and rightfully so against the Vietnam War. He had deep concerns about it. Um, he was fundamentally convinced we were going in the wrong direction. He was right. Um, but by that time, he, he really didn't want to be involved in politics anymore. I describe how he had good personal relationships with a number of presidents, but um, he wasn't making grand public statements about um, politics. And so domino theory led to a lot of grievous mistakes. Um, Vietnam certainly being the, the, the most conspicuous one um, during Wallace's um, lifetime. And um, at least in that regard, Wallace wouldn't have fall, fallen into that sort of sloppy thinking. Um, Wallace, after his retirement, after getting walloped in the 1948 election, once he decided um, that he was going to break with the Soviets, he was going to break with the CPUSA, the U.S. Communist Party. And that was mostly because he felt that these, these people had... Um, um, uh, abandoned him and undermined him. But once he put them aside, he was quite a, 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 um, a strikingly in, in, incisive and insightful thinker on many issues. As I explained in the book, for example, um, 
with when the Korean War rolled around. Um, Wallace, I rightly identified very early on, and he didn't have access to the archival material that I have access to now, that Stalin was trying to push China and the United States into war with each other. Okay, this was this was matter of speculation at the time in Wallace's day. Um, mm -hmm. But I have documents that establish that. But Wallace pointed this out publicly that the Soviets were trying to get the U.S. and China into a conflict. And, and um, um, this, was, this was outrageous. We couldn't move in this direction. It was critical for the United States um, to support um, uh, South, South Korea. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I, give him, I give him a lot of, of credit for how he acknowledged um, mistakes that he had made um, once he moved into his um, uh, retirement. Um, and he, he, he showed that he was, he was, he was capable of, 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 of thinking in, in a much more clear-headed fashion about geopolitics. So to close, I think the, I think the most news you can use aspect of this book, separate from the debate about Oliver Stone's accuracy, is just this idea that during transitional foreign policy moments, we shouldn't just accept conventional wisdom and we should accept that there are different paths and nothing inevitably has to be um, inevitable, to put it eloquently. Um, so I guess my real question for you would be, how does writing this book, researching this topic, inform or even, frankly, how the language we use, like Cold War, is this the second Cold War, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How does all this writing and research and thinking you've done on this topic inform how you think about the transitional 2020s moment? Right. Well, what's remarkable about the early um, uh, 1940s historically is that the, the U.S. is rising towards it, the apex of its economic and military dominance in the world, right? And so it's a period in, in which we were able to develop a, a world vision that we could carry out pretty much on our own. I describe how we did that at Bretton Woods, for example. I mean, this notion that Bretton Woods was this kumbaya conference of 44 nations, nothing like that happened. This was dictated by the United States. This was kabuki theater. Um, so there were so many visions being pursued in the United States. You had the isolationists on, on, on uh, one extreme. You had the um, hyper-internationalists like Wendell Wilkie and, and Henry Wallace on the other extreme. And then in between, you had um, the two world figures um, in the early post-war period. These are people from the Truman administration, you know, Dean Acheson, Charles Bull, and George Kennan, et cetera. Um, uh, who are trying to navigate uh, between these two um, polar extremes. It's those people who came to dominate American foreign policy during the uh, 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 Cold War. Um, fast forward to today, and we're going through some of these same growing pains. You know, with the end of the um, uh, Cold War, the collapse of the uh, Berlin Wall in 89 and the collapse of the Soviet Union. Again, um, we were um, at the top of the mountain and we could have gone in so many different um, directions. 
Um, and we decided ultimately I would, I would, this is the way I would characterize it to produce a contemporary one world, um, uh, model, mm -hmm. um, you know, the so-called Washington consensus that, uh, the, Fukuyama is the end of history, right? That the democratic capitalism was the, the end state, the teleological end state of, um, history and, um, Huge, powerful segments of the world are pushing back against that now. Um, in particular, of course, China, um, which is now developing an alliance with um, Russia. And we're really struggling to um, articulate a vision that we are capable of carrying out. Um, I would say that the alliances that we put into place in the 1940s, um, particularly NATO, um, uh, our alliances in Asia with um, Japan and, and South Korea, um, the EU was very much a creation of the, the Marshall Plan and the State Department um, thinking. Those alliances are more critical to the United States today than they were even in the 1940s because we are so much less dominant today. We were more than half the world's economy um, um, in 1947. Today Nuclear we're only, monopoly, all sorts of things like that. Right. Today we're only a quarter of the world's um, uh, economy and that will probably shrink um, uh, going forward. So the way we manage our alliances is becoming critical absolutely critical to our ability um, to pursue our foreign policy um, uh, vision. And I think we're really struggling now to determine the directions um, in which we should be going. And um, I, I think the fact that you've got, oops, a foreign policy, this remarkable polarization between the, the, the Biden view that we need to uh, rebuild our alliances and create new ones with powers like India, for example. And the Trump vision, on the other hand, um, back to uh, America first, um, sometimes America alone. The fact that we've got these polar visions that are so compelling to significant um, elements of the American um, uh, public um, illustrates how, how we're really struggling to determine um, what our rightful place in the world is today. Um, and looking back at the 1940s is, um, I think, a good start in terms of helping us understand um, uh, what, the, what the right path is and what some of the wrong paths are. So here's the actual closing question then. Um, the term or the word idealism especially in the foreign policy context, brings a lot of feelings um, together. I think it could be wrapped up in Wilsonian thought and post-Cold War excess. But I think at a biographical level, I would describe the Henry Wallace, who you really tell the story of, as a deeply idealistic person. If we're seeing this polarized foreign policy debate um, on the Trump side, on the Biden side, um, what is the role of like the idealistic perspective within sorting through these things. So we're at a deeply cynical moment ourselves, obviously. Sure. You, know, you know, even uh, Henry Kissinger, um, who uh, was in, in, in terms of his public persona, uh, 
the ultimate realist, always mm -hmm. emphasized that um, uh, American uh, foreign policy had to have a moral and idealistic dimension. It's, it's who we are as a people. And if we deviate too far um, from uh, um, uh, that, that moral perspective, that idealistic um, uh, pers perspective, we would not be successful in car carrying out um, um, uh, agendas that are, are also geostrategic. Um, and so uh, I think it is very important um, that we have uh, um, leaders who can explain from um, uh, uh, a moral perspective why certain structures um, are important um, to our national security, to our prosperity that these are not just um, a short-term um, uh, palliatives, um, that these, that, um, that uh, although, although we don't seek to impose our values on, on other countries, we do seek to um, uh, uh, embed our values in all our fundamental um, uh, our policy perspectives. I think that is what has historically made uh, America such a compelling beacon um, to the rest of the world, that we didn't just pursue our self-interest. Of course, we did pursue our self-interest, but not just um, our self-interest. The institutions that we put in place in the, in the 1940s, the UN, um, the GATT, which became the WTO, helping create the European Union, um, NATO um, to defend the the West um, uh, in 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 Europe. Um, those structures did have a powerful idealistic component that drew um, others into that uh, framework. If that idealism hadn't been there we wouldn't have been able to do it. Very well said. Ben, thank you so much uh, for joining me on The Realignment. We've listed uh, a bunch of books, obviously um, the latest on Henry Wallace, but I think folks should definitely um, get the entire canon. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. Thanks for having me, Marshall. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you learned something, like this sort of mission, or want to access our subscriber-exclusive Q&A, bonus episodes, and more, go to realignment.supercast.com and subscribe to our $5 a month, $50 a year, or $500 for lifetime membership rates. See you all next time.